Amen. Thank you so much, Ben and Mackenzie. Good morning, everyone. Um, so good to see you all again. And uh, we're continuing on in our, um, our series uh, uh, talking about um, abundant life and weaving in through the fabric of, of that overarching theme in chapel this, this whole year. Um, and talking about uh, pro-life. And as a, just a by way of reminder, if you remember all the way back the first week of chapel, myself and then President Kiritan talked about how we're going to weave uh, on a monthly basis um, a different pro-life perspective as a part of an overarching theme of abundant life um, all the way from the womb to the tomb. And so we've been focusing on life in the womb. And uh, we've had Kim Katola, uh, who is with us uh, and really kind of coming back home to Northwestern as she's um, spent a, a significant time of her uh, life and ministry here in the Twin Cities. And let me tell you a little bit about her um, as she comes up. So Kim is a, an award-winning broadcaster and writer. She was inducted into the Minnesota Broadcasting Hall of Fame in 2013 for her work um, with KS95 and WCCO Radio and TV and KTIS. Her book, Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion, is an Amazon number one bestseller and was a finalist for the Evangelical Christian Press Association's Book of the Year in 2013 and features a forward by Ruth Graham. She's also produced and hosted pro-life radio features from 2012 to 2018. She earned her bachelor's in ministry from here at University of Northwestern in 2008, and she served as an adjunct faculty in the media ministries here at Northwestern. She's currently, along with her husband, uh, living in Georgia and serves uh, as the lead coordinator at an abortion recovery su- support, a ministry of the Fayette Pregnancy Resource Center in Fayetteville, Georgia. So would you please give uh, Kim Katola a warm Northwestern welcome as she returns back to us for a second day in a row. And uh, would you please join me in praying for him, uh, praying for uh, Kim and praying for uh, ourselves. Thank you, Justin. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Um, that we can, we can worship you, that we can be here together as your people, as your kids, as your children, Lord. And we, we declare, Lord, that because you are worthy, Lord, that, that is why we're here. That is why we worship. That is why we continue in worship. And uh, through uh, what, all of what's coming forward in, in the rest of this, today's chapel, and thank you for bringing Kim here um, again for her second day in a row. And as she continues to unpack um, really your, uh, your perspective and what your word says regarding the dignity, value, and worth of human life inside the womb. I pray that you would um, help us to not just receive information, Lord, but that your truth would, br- would do a transformative work at the heart level in each of us today. Help us to be open. Help us to be receptive. Help us to lean in, to acknowledge your presence, to be aware of your worthiness and aware of Um, how you're moving and calling us uh, to obey. Lord, we love you so much, and we praise you, and thank you for loving us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Justin. How many of you were here yesterday to see that live ultrasound? That was pretty amazing, wasn't it? If you weren't here, you missed seeing um, a 14-week-old baby in the womb looking out at us. It was displayed on the big screen here on the Jumbotron, uh, doing some gymnastics, flexing and whatnot, and moving mouth. And we didn't find out the sex of the baby, but uh, the ultrasound is getting more and more precise. Again, for those of you who weren't here, some of us were able to discern that this baby's a doctor. No, okay. (laughs) 
one thing that we did see is that this was a full human being at 14 weeks gestation. And we learned, uh, just to briefly review for you the case for life, we learned that science proves the full humanity of children before they are born. When we're making the case for life, the questions are, what is the unborn? When does life begin to have value? And then, is abortion immoral? These are the questions that we have to answer if we're making the case for life. And we have to present evidence as we're answering those questions. And we learned yesterday that we can answer the question, what is the unborn, by looking to fetology, embryology, medical science, and as well as obstetrics. Because there's no controversy that human life begins at conception, scientifically. There is no scientific controversy about this. And this is really the central question, because if the unborn is a distinct, living, and whole human being, which is a quote from Langman's Embryology textbook, distinct, living, and whole human being from conception forward, then there's no good reason that we can offer and justify to take that human life. If the unborn is not human, then we don't need any reason whatsoever. We can follow the culture and have abortion on demand and without apology. That's the latest slogan from abortion rights proponents. Because if it's not a human being, it doesn't matter. Um, and you know, if you've followed the issue that there are states that are arguing and legislating for what to do if a child survives an abortion attempt, right? Is this news to anybody here today? Right, Virginia and New York, people who are concerned that in the current political climate, Roe v. Wade could be turned back and abortion rights could be limited. So they're proactively going to their state legislatures and saying, well, okay, if a, an abortion, a baby survives an abortion attempt, what shall we do? And these states are saying, it's up to the mother. Right? Like, what? <laughs> This is a living human, now this is a living human being, completely viable, before you. What are you going to do? Comfort measures. The physician, who's the governor of Virginia, said, we'll give him comfort measures and ask what the mother wishes to do. He circled back and he said, well, I was talking about, you know, babies that don't have a chance for surviving some sort of fatal condition. But that ought to be horrifying to all of us. We're no longer even asking if this is a human being. We're just asking, when may we kill it? And the answer is, if the mother wants us to. Okay, so you may say, I don't like controversy. You may say, abortion's got nothing to do with me. I'm living the life that God has called me to of sexual purity. This is not pertinent to my life. But I'm telling you that when our fellow human beings are dying at the rate of 4,000 a day in our country, it has everything to do with every one of us as Christians who are called to rescue those being led away to the slaughter. So, the Case for Life is based on Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life, and I urge you to get it because it's an exhaustive way for you to be able to defend the pro-life view, and it may even persuade you of some things that you still have had some lingering questions about. And I also will review that yesterday I disclosed that I had an abortion when I was 23 years old, and what I want you to know about that, I mean, I, we, I was in a stable relationship. I thought we'd get married. Um, he didn't want to. And so he and the 
members of my family that I talked with all agreed that my, my answer to this unexpected pregnancy was that I needed an abortion. I had just gotten a job in radio, which was my dream after I had quit college. Uh, I quit college after two years at Northwestern University in Chicago. And um, that was a decision fueled by weed. I'm just going to be honest with you. That was a really foolish, just, my grandpa had left money for me to, to have a college education, so it was like I had a full ride family scholarship. And after two years, I just walked away from it. I mean, I had been admitted to their theater department, one of the most competitive ones in the country. It's a sure bet when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, <laughs> you're gonna be doing things that are very harmful to you. So. You know, the true, the true story of what happened in that abortion goes all the way back to there. Because now, when I came back to Minnesota and went to a vocational program and I was back on track, I had put myself through this thing and I'd gotten, I'd, I'd completed a year of radio in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and then I would, got my job at KS95. I was 23, I had my own program, I was ready to launch and on track. My boyfriend and I had Met, excuse me, while I was putting myself through that broadcast program, and we were engaged. I mean, ladies, I had no ring, we had no date, but we were engaged. <laughs> and gentlemen, <laughs> right? So um, now I'm pregnant, and what do I do? I'm thinking, he's, well, we're going to get married. No, he, we're not getting married. He's not ready for that. So uh, I asked if it was a baby. And everyone told me, no, it's not a baby, it's just tissue, not yet a baby. But again, as I've told you, we know that science proves that from conception forward, the embryo, the zygote, the embryo, the fetus, distinct living whole human being. So some were invested in that lie, some were simply ignorant as I was, but that's what I accepted as truth. And that's what drove the abortion. And it wasn't a decision on my part, it was a matter of feelings if I had no choice. I had no social support to carry that pregnancy forward. And again, part of the reason why this matters to you is, do you think that there might be some of your fellow students here on campus who might be engaged in fornication? I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands. Do you think there might be someone in your social circle outside of Northwestern UNW who doesn't have the benefit of the Holy Spirit and knowing truth, right? Do you, do you think you might play some influential role in the lives of someone who may find themselves in an unexpected pregnancy? I think you may, right? And are you called as citizens to vote and put policies in place that do or do not defend the youngest members of the, uh, of the human family? You do, you know? And so I mean, a lot of those factors had to, went into me having that abortion. It was legal, therefore I thought it must be moral. Everyone around me supported abortion, said it was an answer. Everyone around me told me there was no moral problem with this whatsoever. Well, you know, I wasn't walking with the Lord. I had some Christian training, but I didn't get the cross, and so I wasn't walking with the Lord, and I just was mortified that my boyfriend had rejected uh, this pregnancy and me in the bargain, and, you know, and so I was just gonna do what he wanted me to do, he paid for it, he went with me. And 
I want you to know that when the word says God is faithful and when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. That right before that procedure began, it was a vacuum aspiration, which is a dismemberment abortion. Uh, the vacuum pulls apart the products of conception as they're known medically. And then they have to catalog those parts afterwards to be sure that they got everything. Has anyone ever, is this news to anyone? Is that new information to anyone? Okay, you all knew that. Great. So there, I, I had no idea, but there I was. And they didn't prep me for knowing that all of that was going to occur. Right before it began, the attendant took my hand and asked, are you all right? And I was very detached. And I was trying to get in there and get out like you would a root canal or something, you know, painful and unwelcome. And, uh, but that contact woke me up, and the Holy Spirit came. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know how to respond to him. But the Holy Spirit came and said, this is wrong. You need to leave. You are not all right. And I did a quick mental calculation of my boyfriend out in the lobby and... My new job, I was three months into this new job, which was my relaunch after quitting college and squandering the family resources. And it was a long time ago, way before single motherhood or women in the workplace without marriage with children was a thing. And I said, I'm fine. And I allowed it to take place. So getting up from that, I had the burden of knowing that I was a coward and that I had failed in the last line of defense in the life of my child. Now, in my mind, there was no child, but this pregnancy I knew represented another life, and I'd had a hand in taking a human life. So immediately, I was filled with resentment and very angry at my boyfriend, and of course, our relationship did not last. And mind you, Everyone told me abortion was okay, and I was not a Bible-thumping Christian. I didn't even really understand the cross. So people who want to tell you that, oh, it's just Christians forcing their morality or creating stigma, no. <laughs> My heart knew that this was gravely wrong, but now there was no way to undo it. You know, and I lived with that for a lot of years. And I, I, as we go, I'll tell you about how the Lord, and the only reason I tell you any of that is so you know how far the Lord had to go to bring me back to himself. But keep in mind as you hear that story that, you know, what drove the abortion was the fact that I was an upstanding, middle-class woman, young woman, who wanted to preserve that status. I wasn't poor, you know, I, wa I didn't have any of these hard cases, it, it, and that's, that's who's having abortions, y'all. It's young women in the launch phase. Really, our policy in America is a middle-class insurance policy that young women can continue their jobs and their education, and no one's gonna suffer because, of course, we haven't yet admitted as a culture that the unborn are human beings, human persons worthy of love and dignity. But I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we go this question, you know, like, what could have saved my child? I don't know if anybody already has an idea of what could have saved my child. 
but hopefully some things will occur to you as we're going through the presentation because I assume most of you are pro-life. I don't have to persuade you that you should be pro-life. But how do we answer objections in the most persuasive way? How do we engage the culture so that they can be pro-life as well? And not just on a legal basis, because I'm telling you, if we go to Washington and succeed and abortion becomes illegal to today, tomorrow someone's gonna to be seeking out an abortion, right? It's not just happening down in Washington, D.C., where policy is being made. Abortions are happening in our neighborhoods, right? And so we have to be the salt and light to change culture, to change hearts and minds. And now, you may ask yourself, if we're talking about abortion, what's a dude doing on her slide? Because men can't get pregnant, so they can't have an opinion about abortion. Has anybody ever heard that? Has anybody ever bowed to that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is a perfect example of where logic breaks down and where if someone rolls that out for you, you can just use logic to show them that they don't know, <laughs> that there's no merit to that assertion. And there are a number of reasons why men can have opinions about abortion and be proactive and engage the culture on this question. Number one, arguments don't have genders. You're gonna present evidence. You as a, as a male say, the science of embryology teaches us that life begins at conception. You're a man, get out of this conversation. Wait a minute, what does my being a man have to do with the scientific evidence I've just presented to you, right? That's how that little exchange would go. Well, there are more reasons. First of all, I mean, secondly, it's sexist to suggest that men aren't stakeholders in the acts of procreation, <laughs> as well as um, legislation affecting dependent human beings. So, and I don't know if you men know, you young men know that the way the abortion uh, law, it, was, it wasn't a law, it was a ruling by the Supreme Court, but the way that ruling was made means that men have no legal standing in the lives of their children before they're born. And there have been at least eight court cases where men went and sued to prevent an abortion from their married wives, and the courts ruled they had no legal standing in the lives of those children. And yet the same government will hound you for 18 years to complete a financial responsibility, even if that pregnancy was unwanted on your part as a man. Am I stirring some thoughts of activism on this issue, guys? This is really unjust. You can point those things out when people talk about women's rights. This is not equality. Women obtain those rights at the expense of the rights of men and, of course, the right of children to even be human, much less the right to live. So a, a, a third reason is we're now at a place where the language is changing officially to no longer speak about pregnant women, but to talk about pregnant people, because men can get pregnant too. Thank you, transgender activism. That's, that is policy in place already in the UK, and it's pretty, I mean, there are already forces, you know, pushing for that here. So, I mean, 
The idea that abortion is a women's only issue is now off the table, right? Men can get pregnant. I mean, just propose that and see what answers people might give you. And furthermore, in 1973, the Supreme Court ruling that made abortion legal was decided by seven men and two dissenting men. So if men can't have an opinion on this, we better go revisit this whole conversation, right? It's absurd to, to uh, think that men can't or shouldn't have an opinion about abortion. So I want to talk as much about um, what the, the concrete arguments against abortion are and how to counter them, you know, how to present these arguments. But I think I also want to just kind of talk to you a little bit today about how to go about this and why we go about it. Because, you know, has anybody ever had a conversation about this issue that just fell apart and people just walked away angry or upset? Yeah. Or witnessed that? Been on the sidelines and decided, I'm not going there in, with people. So persuasion happens uh, through a prolonged campaign using concrete word choices to relate to your listener through stories and vivid language based on data from hostile to neutral sources. That's how persuasion happens. Okay, so there are a lot of pieces to that puzzle. So for us to expect that you're going to have one conversation and people are going to go, thank you for setting me straight, is just not realistic, first of all. When have you ever done that, right? But it's really important that you be aware of these hostile to neutral sources so that you be reading the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of the pro-abortion rights advocacy that is out there in the name of news. It's really important that you at least know what's happening there because these are the trusted sources for people who believe that abortion is a woman's right and a good and right thing for us as culture. So you're gonna have to be patient, you're gonna have to use precise language, powerful illustrations, and have the perspective of the person that you're engaging with. And I'll give you one example of this. So when I first trained with Scott Klusendorf to make the case for life, I was leaving um, Bartlesville, Oklahoma. We, we studied at Oklahoma Wesleyan University and I was in the airport and it was very early and there was no one else around. There was a man at the information booth. There was literally no one else around. Um, African-American man looked like he was maybe in his mid-40s. And he, how are you doing this morning? Well, I'm glad to see somebody's over here and I didn't come to work for nothing. Right, you know, what are you doing? Oh, well, I just learned how to, you know, talk with people about the abortion issue. Oh, you know, he looked down. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, do you have an opinion about this? He's, well, yeah, I mean, a woman, it's got to be whatever she wants, you know. And I said, well, that's interesting because here's one of the things that I learned. And I had his attention, and he was engaged. I had asked him what he thought. And so I told him, I said, you know, when Senator Obama was running for president, he had a conversation with Pastor Rick Warren, who asked him, given your background in civil rights law, when does a fetus obtain human rights? Which is a brilliant question, isn't it? And Senator Obama gave an aw shucks reply, saying, that's above my pay grade. We have to leave that to the theologians and the scientists. And it was a very astute answer because as president, he doesn't really, it, that isn't within his 
pay grade to be legislating on that or ruling on that in the judicial. But basically, his answer embodies, oh, we can't know. We can't know when any human rights should begin. And so I said to Gary, the guy in the airport, I said, Gary, let's say that you had taken your wife to the hospital because um, she's going to have a baby and it's, you know, things aren't going well and you need to get there right now. And it's a rainy, stormy night. And in the middle of the road, you see something that looks like that might be a person under a coat or a blanket or something, but you cannot stop. Ethically, it's okay for you to continue because you're in this emergency. But would it be okay for you to go ahead and hit that person because you don't know if it's a person or not? He said, well, no, of course not. And I said, well, then why would it be okay for us to take the life of a child because we don't know if it yet has any human rights? And he paused and he, he smiled and he said, well, you know, you've given me something to think about. And I said, you know, the reason this matters to me is I had an abortion. I shared a little bit of my story with him. And it was a win, okay? Because he didn't say to me, you're right, wow, women shouldn't be allowed to just do that when we don't even know when life begins or when life begins to have value. No, he didn't say anything like that. But what he said was, you've given me something to think about, and that's your goal when you have conversations like this. The types of abortion rights assertions that you're going to find are either based on science, philosophy, morality. We've talked in the case for life about how to answer those, but they may be religious or talk about the hard cases and exceptions too. And so I'm going to come back to some you know, some of these examples that, and give you some tools as to how to answer them. But I wanted to also talk about cognitive dissonance. And, you know, cognitive dissonance is what happens. It's the psychological stress resulting from challenging deeply held beliefs with new information. And again, this is the reason why no one is going to look at you and say, thanks for this new information. You've just busted up my whole worldview. You know, you're not going to hear that. You're probably going to have them look away and avoid the topic and say, got to go. I don't want to talk about this at all. Um, they may do some editing where they remember some of what you said, but they won't incorporate anything into a new belief. Or they'll do the thing like when you go to a conference or a retreat and you come back really gung-ho and you're going to do the thing and then two days later you forgot. Um, a passive-aggressive way of uh, resolving this stress is that you just twist it and you get it wrong. And you, after today, you say, she just stood up there and, you know, hit me over the head with Bible verses about why I shouldn't have an abortion. What's that got to do with my life? You know, that would be a twisting of what I've actually said here. Or you could get very aggressive and blame and attack me and just say, well, her problem is she had an abortion, so now she wants the rest of us to feel guilty and ignore the evidence that I've presented to you about why human life is valuable from conception forward. But the other thing that can happen um, in response is they may, they may agree, they may be persuaded. Persuasion is simply accepting new ideas as true. But, you know, again, be aware, it may initiate anger rather than connection. And so the whole thing about engaging on controversial issues, and this one in particular, is, you know, what are you aiming for? Are you trying to win an argument? Are you trying to crush them? Are you trying to um, dominate a conversation? 
You know, your, your aim ought to be what we describe as diplomacy rather than D-Day. It may take a series of conversations. You're not hoping to blow up their whole, you know, point of view in, in a conversation. You, you want to win influence, not win arguments, right? And again, as with Gary, you want to leave a pebble in their shoe, something they can't avoid thinking about because it's troubling the status quo of what they believe. But it's really important to remember if anyone becomes angry, you, as the apologist, have lost. If you become angry or the person you're talking with becomes angry, you lost. And you need to regroup and, and correct that and repair that. Um, because uh, that's not how you win hearts and minds. It's just not how you win hearts and minds. And I'll give you an example. Um, so I was talking with someone who's an animal rights activist, and she was very uh, interested in um, what I had learned about making the case for life, and we talked about it. And, and I, I told her the case from philosophy is that we all have equal value by virtue of our shared human nature. So if it's not our human nature that gives us our value, if it's something else like you can think or you can feel or some of the developmental things that abortion rights advocates try to argue, well then, there's no such thing as equal human rights. We either have our human rights because we're human or there's no such thing as equal human rights. And she didn't like that. She thought that there was a special circumstance for a woman who's pregnant. And I said, well, that's okay. Just be intellectually honest enough to say that you're not in favor of equal human rights for all human beings because we've already shown that the child in the womb is a, is a human being. And when she heard me say, you're not in favor of equal human rights for all human beings, she looked like she was going to cry, but not like I'm sad, like I'm going to cry and then murder you, you know? <laughs> and I had to say, you know, I'm sorry that I said you're, that I suggested you're not being intellectually honest. It's much more important to me that you and I be able to continue having conversations about this than that you agree with me or believe what I believe. Because that was true also. And we have had subsequent conversations. And so, you know, you, you need to be winsome. And again, we're talking about hearts and minds. So some of the, you know, the typical pro-life, uh, pro-abortion assertions, and this is really important, I guess, um, just in the interest of time, I want to direct you back to Klusendorf's book as well as to a book by Greg Kokel called Tactics, because you're going to find a lot of extremely useful, concrete information in both of those books, way more than I could cover on this. But when we talk about, you know, the types of assertions that people make, they're seldom giving you evidence and actually making an argument. And that's all you really need to know. So if someone says, how can you say that a, a fetus or a zygote the size of a dot has equal value to a woman who's, you know, living and breathing and um, is, uh, you know, a full human being? How can you say they have equal value and should have equal rights? Well, what have they just done? They've just assumed that the child in the, in the womb is not human, but they haven't given you any evidence for it, right? And so you can, you can come back to uh, the assumption. It's called begging the question in logic. You know, what evidence do you have that the zygote is not fully human, right? 
And that's, that's one of your best tactics that you can use, um, the Columbo questions. So they allow you to main, maintain control. Columbo was an old school TV character, and he, he looked like he was just a mess, and he wore a rumpled raincoat, and he solved every case using these questions. I just, you gotta help me out with one thing here, he would say. You know, so he assumed a very humble position in all of his interrogations, and he would say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, if someone says it's just a speck, it's not a person, what do you mean by that? Um, and how did you come to that conclusion? Everyone wants to talk about what they believe, so you're listening, you're engaging, you're giving them that. Um, but then you can ask, you know, have you thought about the implications of your view? And this was um, when I was talking with someone who was arguing about bodily autonomy, which is, a lot of people will agree that the unborn is fully human, but they'll say, not equal to a, a, you know, an adult woman. And it's her decision because the baby's living in her body. It's a special circumstance. I had a conversation with someone and I said, you know, and she, she was a mother. And I said, you know, when you showed us that ultrasound and you were so excited about it, you know, what if I had said to you, oh, I see that there's something residing in your body. Well, come back to me in nine months when the baby's born, when I'll have an interest in it, and then we can celebrate. But until now, this has got nothing to do with me. That's just your property and your business. And she looked really horrified. And it's like, why would that be wrong? Well, because we already love this baby, both of us, right? Uh, if you think through the implications of bodily autonomy, it would mean that you know, obst obstetricians would not have any interest in treating babies um, before they're born or treating them as patients in the pregnancy, and of course that's not true if you know anything about medical ethics. Um, one of the other extremely effective uh, tactics that you can deploy is just, you know, to recognize that it's most people who want to justify killing another human being through abortion do so on the basis of the size of the child, you know, just a speck, their level of development, well, they can't think yet, they can't even feel, they have no self-interest. Uh, their environment, it's her property, the baby's living in a woman's body, or their degree of dependency. Baby's not viable outside the mother's womb, therefore we may kill it. But you see, none of those justifications change the fact that that's a full human being. And the other thing is to trot out a toddler and see if what they're talking about works if we're talking about a toddler versus a, a fetus. Because we know, medically, scientifically, there's no difference. It's a full, distinct, whole, living human being. So if someone says, for example, it's a, pri it's a woman's private decision, you say, oh, I see. So if a woman were to privately be abusing her child and um, beating them, would that be something that you would be in favor of allowing to stand? And you'd say, you know, they're probably gonna say, no, of course not, well, why not? Well, because that, that child is already a child. The fetus is not a child. And then you come back to their assumption that the unborn is not fully human. These are extremely effective tactics, again, to get people thinking. And so, um, again, I urge you to, um, to search out Klusendorf and Kokel's work. Um, I want to close with this image, and it is an image of an aborted fetus, fetal remains, and I want to give you the opportunity to look away.
because it is graphic and it's violent. And if you don't wish to see it, please look away now. One of the most persuasive things that you can do is to either show a visual of what abortion does to the bodies of the children who suffer from it, or to, if that's not possible, to be very descriptive in your language, as I was at the opening of my talk, about what it is that abortion is and does to the children who suffer from it. As someone has said, it's time to open the casket on abortion, lovingly and truthfully. And as a feminist, abortion proponent, Naomi Wolf said, how can we charge that it is vile and repulsive of pro-lifers to brandish vile and repulsive images if the images are real? I want to leave you with this uh, verse from... Sorry. I want to leave you with this verse from Proverbs 24 that says, rescue those who are being led away to slaughter. If we say that we knew nothing of this, will not God who guards your heart know it? And will he not repay everyone for what they have done? Now you know what is happening through legal abortion in our world. So you're not only safeguarding the lives of children when you engage in rescue, but you're safeguarding your own future because God will repay whether we choose to rescue or whether we look the other way and plead ignorance. The blood of Jesus Christ redeemed me after my abortion and it was in Christian community that I have been restored fully and it took a long, long time. I was bound in shame for over two decades and I, I'm so grateful for that but the truth is that there's still someone missing in my life. My son, who'd been old enough to be your parents or your professors today. I gave him the name Emmanuel because he would have been born close to Christmas. And we'll never know what God had in mind for him because of what I did. We don't know if God wanted him to be a professor or a daddy. But I do know this, that his life has eternal value because coming to terms with what I had done and destroying his life is he is the one who has made me a follower of Jesus Christ. No sin is above the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. And some of you may be struggling with something that has caused great shame that you've been carrying for a long time as well. Let my story and example prove to you that God loves you. There's nothing that you could do that would make him love you any less nor is there anything you could do that would make him love you any more. And if we deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Embrace God's love for you and then respond in kind by loving your neighbor enough to rescue those being led away to slaughter and to share the good news with those who've been hurt by abortion that God's redeeming love is for them as well. Will you pray with me? Father, in your holy name, I thank you for the attention of the students and for their being here today. And I pray that you touch each one and give them opportunities, whether through New Life Family Services or all of the other pro-life ministries here in the Twin Cities, to express the truth that you've laid on our hearts about the value of children and about the dignity and worth of womanhood and motherhood and fatherhood and living according to your plan, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.